Welcome to the Be Real Podcast. I'm Diana Gasparoni. I'm a visionary psychotherapist, CEO, and founder of Be Well Psychotherapy and Be Her Programs. I am Ednisha Salisbury. I am a therapist, speaker, trainer, and co-creator of Black Woman Be Whole. Each week, we will talk about the journey of mental health wellness. We will talk about why your mental health is just as important as your physical health and the connection that being mentally well has on all areas of your life. We will be interviewing psychotherapists, doctors from both Eastern and Western disciplines, authors, change makers, thought leaders, and more. Our mission is to bring you information that is both thought provoking and encourages you to look closer at your mental and emotional well-being. We give you tips and insights to taking the next steps. If you have already gotten into the door, we'll get you to go a little deeper. Each week, we're going to have real conversations, helping you work through your mental wellness questions and reminding you that you are not alone. Mental wellness is our passion. We practice what we preach. It is our mission to touch as many souls as we can with this content and leading you to a place of mental clarity and well-being. So for the next hour, let's work together, lay back on the couch and get real. Well, hello and welcome back. It's me, Diana, again on Be Real, and I'm here with my girl, Anisha, again. I am here. We are always here. We are it's always thing. here. It's a thing. It's, it's, it's a thing. We started a, a podcast in the pandemic, and we're here every week. And we are keeping it going, and we are keeping it real. I am super excited today, as I am every Friday, to see your face, but I, I'm really excited to get to know our guest today. So, Dr. Carlton Green, please jump in and tell our listeners who you are, and a little bit about yourself. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this conversation today. I too am excited about it. I was looking over your questions and thinking like, hmm, these are really good. Let me, let me, let me brush up on my own thoughts around these. But I'm Dr. Carlton E. Green. I am a licensed psychologist in the state of Maryland. Um, I'm also the director of diversity training and education at the University of Maryland in the Office of Diversity and Inclusion. I've been doing this, having, I've had this role for about um, three years now. Um, prior to taking on this role, I was a staff psychologist in the University Counseling Center for about five years. That's a little bit about me. I guess the other piece that I would probably also add is I am also a part-time DEI consultant um, to other institutions and community um, organizations, really trying to get people to, or people reach out to me more often than not to talk about race and racism and racial trauma and how it is that it might be manifesting in the context of the organization or how it is that the folks who are engaged in the organization or engaging the organization can be leaning towards anti-racist practice. And then the other piece that I do also, really small on the side, is I also see some clients independently um, as well to keep my therapy skills um, going and, and brushed up. You are a busy man. <laughs> yes. I it's thought like, I was busy. I thought right. you were busy, Diana. I was like, but... I was busy until this, until I heard all that. And I'm like, wait, you still see patients too? I, I love um, that, that you still take the time to do that. How many patients do you still have? Oh, it's a small number. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, I think right now, maybe I I have somewhere between three and five people that I see. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. So it it keeps me in the field. Well, it keeps me so like in therapy um, with clients, which is something that I think that I always want to be doing. Um, And then I have all these other um, ventures, right, um, that I'm always thinking about as well. There's you do so many amazing things. So let's just start with how it got started. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> sure. Like, we're just going to start from the beginning. We're going to go through the whole thing. I mean, I know I want to jump into the work that you do with organizations because I know that my organization, where Anisha and I both practice, we start our anti-racist training next week. And yes, we um, now I'm like, Oh, but I want to pick your brain. And then um, I want to talk about uh, the work that you do at the school, but also just like how you got involved, the trajectory from being a psychologist in the office uh, and the staff psychologist and how this, how it all took place. I'll go back a little bit because I do think that it's important. When I was an undergraduate student down in Texas, I thought that I would be a lawyer one day. That was what had been drilled into me since I was a child. And I really thought, you know, this is what I want to do. Well, I got to my senior year in college and I had not applied to any law schools. So, or I had not done anything really to prepare for law school. So it was pretty apparent that I wasn't going to be doing that. But the summer before my um, senior year, I was involved in interviewing folks who were coming on campus to um, support Black students in particular on, on the campus where I was. And in the course of doing those interviews, I was like, Hmm, this seems really interesting. All the questions that I'm asking are things that I feel like I would want to be doing for students. And so the person who was hired eventually became a really good mentor of mine. I kind of started my trajectory in higher education. So I worked for about 10 years at a a Midwest, uh, not a Midwestern, regional institution down in Texas, and then left there as a result of some things that were happening in the community in my own professional um, journey. I have always been a Christian person, and so I was involved in a Christian community there. And one of the things that I was looking around and observing in the context of the religious settings is that I was perceiving that these these mostly Black folks were experiencing some mental health issues and really thinking about who's helping them and beginning to have this revelation that the traditional preaching that comes across the pulpit in uh, historically Black churches doesn't always meet those needs. I began to have some questions about how can that get done. At the same time, I was teaching a Sunday school class there, and my students, who were also some students at the university where I was working, were really challenging me to think about life, about issues pertaining to identity, about issues related to Christianity. And right around the time when all of this stuff began to unravel, the 9-11 murders happened in New York. And the questions after that were from my students were just like really rattling for me. Like if Osama bin Laden walked into this church right now, right, how should we respond to him? And just really kind of sitting with all of these really challenging things, I was beginning to think that, oh, I want to be doing something different with my life right now. And then another one of my students in my Sunday school class came to me and began to talk to me about um, applying to a pastoral counseling program. And I was like, what is that? I looked into it and I thought, oh, this is exactly what I think that I want to be doing. And then I applied to go to Boston College because they had a dual degree program in mental health counseling and pastoral counseling. And I got accepted and I went to Boston College sight unseen. I left Texas uh, um, and went to Boston, drove all the way up there. And um, yeah, and I was there for about nine years doing my master's program um, in mental health counseling and pastoral counseling. And then in the course of doing that program, really got drafted into doing a doctoral program. It had never been a dream of mine or even an idea of mine. I like that you said Um, drafted. Yes, I was drafted. (laughs) I did too. I was like, well, they wanted to keep you for sure. (laughs) Yeah. I can see that. I can see why. Pressure was on, huh? 
yeah, keep yeah. you and like what where else, how can, how can we keep you in this community and what else can we do because just the when you were talking about the the sort of the light, enlightening of like the mental health practice it the mental health of your congregation and what it is like because some of those questions are not answered from the pulpit. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yeah. And Anisha and I have talked about that quite often and like how to bring mental health counseling into that community and allow for a full range of feelings. I think is that is, I hear you saying it's like, that's a lot to tolerate because the mm-hmm. in um, I was raised Catholic. We didn't, we didn't, we weren't allowed to hate or like be angry even, or like mm-hmm. where to, where to tolerate the guilt. So I love that combination. Yeah. And can I just say one other thing about that too? Just really thinking about, you know, listening to you talk about the emotions. Well, in black churches, we don't actually have a problem with emotion. Um, right. <laughs> that, that there's a lot actually, of feeling. There's a lot of feeling, right? <laughs> what we probably don't haven't been doing as much is really talking to people about emotional instability or emotional wellness, how it is that we need to be shifting the conversation to not only include the liberatory expressions of emotion that we can experience in Black churches, but how do we talk about some of those pieces that are really stigmatized as well in order to be able to help people integrate right, emotion into a, um, all of their emotions into a healthy expression so that we can be more healthy people as we walk around the earth and trying to do what, what it is that we um, believe in as a result of being Christians. Yeah, I love to see a lot in churches now, they have like a mental health ministry and they've asked, actually asked me as a therapist to kind of be a part of it at my own church, right? I just didn't have the time and my church is in Brooklyn and I live in Manhattan, so it was a little rough. But um, when I was deciding to get married, my husband and I went to counseling through the church because as a black man, that was the only way he was comfortable. Okay. He was like, oh, no, we'll talk to someone at church. Right. I'm not talking to anyone else, even though your soon to be wife is a therapist. Mm-hmm. But OK, we'll only go through someone through church. And that's the only way that he felt comfortable. And, and so that's what we did. And Which one has- of my first therapists was a pastoral counselor. And people always thought like, well, how different is it? I was like, well, we pray before and after the session, but we talk about everything. And I think that the thought was that, can you really tell her everything that you're going through? She's not going to judge. I'm like, no, she doesn't judge me. She's a therapist. You know, at the end of the day, that's what she is. But we do pray. And I appreciate that part of it. So I've, I've had experience with pastoral counselors and I loved it. And I told her all the, the crazy stuff and I never felt, you know, like I should hold that back or I should, you know, cut that part out. She won't understand. No, it was, it was just the same as a regular therapist. Yeah. The, the thing that I'll say, which I didn't talk about at the beginning is I'm also the president of the mental health ministry at my church. We have been trying to do more outreach. And at one point we were doing therapy, but we switched to a model where there's all, there's a person full-time at the church trying to offer those services. Mm-hmm. But the outreach that we do currently is about trying to get our different populations within the church, men, seniors, children, adolescents, uh, mothers, right, to be talking about mental health issues as they apply to their day-to-day lives. What I think is really important, one of the things that I really um, understood as a therapist in, in all contexts, but certainly in the Christian context, is we have been trained to sort of like wall off parts of ourselves, yes. um, thinking that maybe God won't see that part of ourselves. <laughs> um, um, and, you know, if, if I don't speak it out loud, if I don't talk about it, or if I just ignore it, then it won't really be a problem when that could be the very thing that's actually creating problems for us. Right. So how do we move into um, conversations that allow us to integrate ourselves, that I can be as a Christian, I can be a person who enjoys sex, as a Christian, I can be somebody who enjoys alcohol occasionally, right? Or, you know, have a, a, a life that, that is open to leisure in ways that maybe 
churches have not always said has has been permissible. So so how do we how do we get to be whole people um, is really the piece that I'm that I'm always thinking about when I'm working with people from our Christian context and not only being able to pray with people but also thinking about how do we actively integrate a liberatory understanding of scripture into um, the therapy right because so many of us have relationships with the Bible and with scripture and oftentimes scripture or the interpretations of scripture can be what contributes to our lack of wellness right or even our sort of like being stuck. So how do we how do we retell these stories in a liberatory way so that we can relate to them differently? That's beautiful. <laughs> it was so I was just thinking about what it, what that the the progressiveness of the way that you're looking at it. It's really it was so fluid and so I I don't have a question. I'm just in awe. So when I, <laughs> right, it. but the fluidity of it. Do you <laughs> consult with churches, right? Because of your point of view, because yeah. the way that you view things, I would gather you're really able to help a lot of churches kind of view things differently. Mm-hmm. So I have not done a lot of consulting in religious or spiritual settings. Okay. Um, as a you know, as somebody who is at my own church, mm-hmm. that is a place where I do provide um, services, and we as a mental health ministry can consult with people. I have done one job with a um, with a church related setting and we were working really on anti-racism mm-hmm. uh, working like in that context right um, but that's also a part of you know there, there are ways for us to be thinking about how do we in a religious setting how would we go to scriptures right which are foundational for so many churches how do we go to scripture and also see the anti-racism there right what is it that we can learn from the children of Israel and their experiences and how it is that they were surviving things um, how it is that they were challenging structures or systems? Right. Um, in order to be able to have lives that were less oppressive or a lot living lives that, that were uh, not just the, the oppressed. Right. I think that there are ways to do it. it. And, you know, to be honest with you, it's probably a an area that I could probably be looking into. Oh, and even as I think about this, that's probably not true. I have done work with churches now that it's <laughs> now that I'm, I'm thinking about it. Yes, I have. <laughs> How does the work with the church and the work at the university, how, how are they parallel? How, what, what happens in both worlds? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's, 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 I was thinking about this, you know, in pre- preparation for today, I was thinking about higher education in particular, but I appreciate you adding the church onto that. There are ways that both churches and higher education like to think of themselves as good, benevolent places, right? Oh, yes, they um, do. Right? Um, <laughs> and what we know is that having conversations about race and about racism and about racial trauma and racial di- discrimination and harassment, those are really difficult conversations. They are inherently messy. They are emotional. They are really not typical for us to engage in, you know, all the time. Mm-hmm. And one of the ethics around churches and higher education is to be nice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a huge piece of the, the way that I talk to folks about racial trauma is, in, 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 and I will add, it's also part of being, being in training to be a therapist. We promote niceness, we promote kindness. And I don't want to say, you know, like there's not a place for niceness and kindness. But what I know is, is that they don't, niceness and kindness don't go together well with racism. No. Right? Um, those just don't go. Nope. Um, so that that's one thing that the churches and schools have in common. I think that there are there. Um, one of the other things is that th- and this is really interesting, and it's so interesting that you added the church piece on. Is that we have ongoing relationships with people in these contexts, right? Yes. 
And these ongoing relationships, of course, develop across time and they can become deeper. Some of them, you know, some of them can still be held at a distance if, if, we, if we so choose. But there is a promise of relating um, in both schools and churches. And what becomes really difficult there is that in the context of our relationships, so few of us have been prepared or trained, if you will, to actually allow for conflict in our relationships, right? Nobody, none of us really likes conflict, right? right? But conflict is a part of relationships. And in churches and in, in, in the higher education settings, nobody likes to deal with conflict. And then the other piece that naturally grows from that one is that I think that hurt and harm are endemic to people who are in relationship with each other. And churches and schools don't like to see themselves as being purveyors of hurt or harm or we certainly don't like to think of ourselves as sites where hurt and harm occur. We always like to focus on so like the goodness or the outcomes or the positivity mm-hmm. right, that, that we're trying to produce. What I know in doing this work is that if we don't pivot to, re- and for me, this is one of the ways that I've learned to start doing the work, is to talk about harm and how it exists in communities, how it exists in relationships, especially around race. Because we can talk all day about trying to create safety on campus. We can talk all day about trying to create inclusive classrooms, or we can talk all day about trying to be a church where we are a beloved community. But if we have not, if we have not acknowledged the harm that has existed in those spaces, then we're just painting over something and not necessarily moving forward in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. So what is it like when you introduce that, that notion to them, right? That pain and harm has occurred here. And how do we now talk about it? Oh gosh, the the def- how much I mean, pushback do you get? Yeah. <laughs> the, the, defensiveness, the defensiveness, right? In so many different ways. I'm actually preparing for a conversation around um, identity and conflict with some colleagues at the University of Maryland, and um, it, we are gearing up for the second part of the conversation because we did the first part and people received it really well. Mm-hmm. So we to, to have a follow up. And we picked a different group of panelists to have the follow-up. And so I was putting this notion on the table of harm. There are people involved in the conversation who are, we're we're a pretty diverse group of folks, right? And um, as we were trying to move through and figuring out what to do, I put harm on the table. One of the people um, said, ooh, that's a really strong word. Um, Maybe we could think of something else, right? And and we were really talking about the, the impetus for this whole thing was, there had been a training on supervision that a number of Black women had come to from all parts of the campus. They, they were not in relationship with each other. And in the context of this training on supervision, many of them began to talk about the harm that they were experiencing on campus in supervisory relationships. You know, that's a part, it's a part of the conversation. As we were trying to address this one participant or this one panelist pushback around using the word harm, Many of the people, mostly people of color, other folks from minoritized identities, were saying, no, this is the right word that we should be using. And I think that there was something about hearing that from all of, from a number of our colleagues, that this person was able to say, okay, I get it now, right? I, I think I get it now. Talking about harm is, it is really, really difficult. I try to do it in a way that people can see initially that harm exists, right, just out in the world, period, as a result of racial racism. Um, But then trying to then bring it into the actual setting where people are. One of the most, and I learned to do this almost by accident. I was giving a a talk around racial trauma. Somebody had seen me give a talk 
and then they wanted to invite me to their institution. So, and they wanted it to be a longer talk. So I was like, oh, okay. So I got to add some things. Um, <laughs> I went in and I observed, or in doing my research on the institution, I found some Twitter um, posts about the institution where their students of color had created a hashtag around the racism that existed at the institution. So I told my story about, so like racism historically and culturally, but then I ended with sort of like, and here it is at your institution. And I was not expecting this. That was the moment that people leaned into the conversation, right? And, and I was talking to a group of therapists and the therapist said things like, I think I know that student. I didn't know that they were experiencing the campus this way. And so something really personal emerged in the context of the conversation that allowed all of them, right, to really lean in and think, oh, this is not about something that's happening out there um, in mm -hmm. another state mm -hmm. on another campus. No. This is happening here. Oh, oh, okay. So, so okay, so we have some work to do. Well, right? and, I'm, and I'm also glad to hear, not glad, but happy when, I'm not going to find the right word, but when you said that you were talking to a group of therapists, because there is the therapeutic which I refer to as a therapeutic defense. We've been talking about it and I'm so excited to bring training into my group because there is this defense that we are, a, we know more or we're not, we're leaving space, especially as a white woman, like that we're leaving space for women of color, our people of color that come to us to have this conversation and we're not. Mm -hmm. And so being able to, really sit and lean in to hear the experience and know like being able to identify that like oh I didn't I didn't leave space for that person to be a full person and talk about their pain when that's why they're here yes yes I think that three things come to mind as you're talking about that there is our, our training right mm -hmm. teaches us in some ways that we are supposed to be the expert in the room yes being trained as an expert and I find this on campus as well and when I'm working with faculty um, being trained or being perceived as the expert in the room, it doesn't generally allow for us to move into a space of what, you know, some, some writers are calling cultural humility, that I can actually learn something, that I can actually um, be from a racial, relational cultural perspective, that I can be impacted by what's mm -hmm. happening here, right? I'm supposed to be the expert who's holding this frame for this client. That gets in the way of us even, even softening at all, right? But it and it also sets us up so that we're supposed to say the right thing, do the right thing, and just help the client. The other thing that I think um, that gets in the way that's also related to our training. The second thing is is that my, my dissertation was on the training experiences of students of color in psychology training programs, looking at multicultural supervision and racial identity development. In doing the research for that, and looking at the original guidelines from the American Psychological Association around multicultural multiculturalism, I forget the exact title, but in that original document, one of the things that it said, which I was like, whoa, it's very explicit in saying that we should teach white people how to work with people of color, right? It doesn't, it didn't really talk at all about intra-racial group issues among people of color communities. It didn't allow for anything like sexual orientation or gender to be a part of the conversation. Those initial guidelines were about white folks helping clients of color. Think about the language there. But um, also never the other way around. As never, if right. People of color don't help 
white people. <laughs> right, right. Okay. So, so there's something very paternalistic, even mm-hmm. in those original guidelines, right? Which doesn't necessarily set us up to be in healthy relationships with people. And then the third thing is, and I think that this is also pretty profound, and I this was actually picked up from a therapist friend's husband who was listening to a <laughs> conversation that we were having, right? He, he observed, um, as we were having this conversation, that in the conclusion of most articles and textbooks and uh, book chapters where they're saying like how to deal with racial issues, mm-hmm. all it ever says is bring it up. You should make sure that you raise- But where them. do I go from there? Exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Good luck. Good luck. We'll just, just bring it up and see what happens. Right. <laughs> just throw right. it up there. That's it, right? Um, and you know, when I do, when I do work with trainees, they do that, they bring it up. And if the client says, oh, I don't think that that's really an issue. The, the trainee will say, oh, okay, I brought it up. I did what I was supposed to do. Let's, you know, let's move on. Right. But there's, there's not a lot of helping people to think in a very nuanced way mm-hmm. about how to actually be in a race related conversation, which again, can be very messy. And I should maybe I should use something more technical. It provokes anxiety for people. Talking about race makes people anxious. It's a huge problem historically, right? And even currently in our country and in the therapy, in the therapy world. I like the word messy. I'm fine with that, but I, I get the induced anxiety too. But <laughs> <laughs> we can just call it what it is. Like it's messy as hell. <laughs> I like both. I like both. I like the definition. This is actually a really good place for us to take a quick break. I am this week, I'm trying to figure out how to get you to come and work with us. So I don't know if Anisha's going to like <laughs> jump in and sign up for one of your trainings, but I'm like, I'm just going to, I don't, I never want this to end. So, but we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. <laughs> As you know, I am a huge supporter of therapy. And if there was ever a time to prioritize your mental well being, it's now. As the founder of Be Well Psychotherapy, I am proud to announce my team is leading the way in online therapy. Be Well is based in New York City, and we were one of the first practices to pivot to online therapy with the outbreak of COVID-19. With over 15 licensed therapists, Be Well offers a variety of methodologies and approaches so you can select a therapist that is a good fit for you. We help individuals of all ages, including kids, teens, couples, and wait for it, we even have online group therapy. There is no need to struggle alone with feelings of depression, anxiety, isolation, grief, or loss. To learn more, visit BeWellPsychotherapy.com or text BeWell, that's one word, to 484848 to get connected with a therapist today. Again, that's BeWellPsychotherapy.com or text BeWell, one word, B-E-W-E-L-L, to 484848 to get connected to a therapist today. And now back to our amazing show. So we are back to be real. And I have to tell you guys, we've had like this whole great conversation between the break, right? We should have been having it here, right? Like on the actual podcast, but we had it during the break, but we only have 15 minutes and what we want to talk about will probably no, we'll take a lot more than 15 minutes, but we're going to try and scratch the surface. <laughs> no, no, we're going to end institutionalized racism in education <laughs> settings in 15 minutes on your market psycho. <laughs> right. So what I brought up was that um, I've been working with Diana for a very long time, right? So since I was in social work school. And so I went to NYU, which was a very white institution. The program, it was maybe like one of four um, people of color in my cohort. Then after that, I went to do like psychoanalytic 
training, which again is very white. So the point of all of this is that I realized that as a black therapist, my training was through the point of view of white people, white institutions. Mm -hmm. And so there were times when Diana would tell me to do things because that was the way that she was trained. But I realized it didn't work for me and it didn't work for my clients. And it also made me feel very guilty as if I wasn't a good therapist. So one of the things that I've always been taught is to kind of just be a blank slate. You're in the room, but you're not. It's all about the client. But I realized with people of color, I'm in a relationship with them and they're in relationship with me. So there's things about me that they want to know, right? But I've been taught to hide everything about myself as a therapist. However, when I walk in and I got my cute skirt on and my pumps and the wedding ring on, they figure out some things about me anyway. We laughed about this in break. I remember when, um, you know, clients would ask me questions about me, what Diana would tell me to say. Right. And so like if they're like, oh, so Anisha, where'd you go on vacation? And it was like, well, if I told you, how would that impact the treatment? And I realized that they want to hear it. Like, no, no, don't tell oh me that. Anisha. It sounds so funny coming out of your <laughs> mouth now that I'm like, OK. And I know I said that and I know I said it more than once. <laughs> and it was because training. they it's cared about training. me. Right. Like they wanted to know where I went just because they were interested. Right. And how would that hurt the treatment for me to just say, hey, this is where I went. And this happens all the time. They care about me. So they'll say, how are you doing, Anisha? And I'll generally say it's a pandemic. Right. Like I'm getting through just like you, because, again, being trained um, from the, the white point of view also is that I'm the expert, but I'm not the expert in the room. I can't be the expert on your life. You are the expert on your life. And I always tell them that. And they want me to give these, them these answers. I'm like, I, that's not what I do anyway. But you have the answer. I'm just going to help you figure it out. But you already have it. And so it's very hard for me because for so long I just felt guilty and like I wasn't doing a good job because I wasn't following the rules. Mm -hmm. But maybe the rules weren't made for people like me. And so I would never follow the rules. And I'll probably never follow the rules. But it took me a long time to realize that I'm a damn good therapist, even though I don't follow the rules. I appreciate you putting that on the table, even thinking about going back to my dissertation. Mm -hmm. One of the things that became apparent to me as I was writing about the experiences of trainees of color in um, mental health training is that, you know, we had this move in the 1980s where psychology and other mental health professions were recognizing something is happening around the population mm -hmm. and we're going to get to a point where we're going to be living in what people call so like what a, a majority minority country. Yeah. And um, the mental health professions in and of themselves were saying like, oh, and we we are not doing a good job of keeping up with those trends. Right. <laughs> so what ensued from there was a move, a push towards recruiting more trainees of color into the practice of psychology to think about being practitioners, to think about um, doing research with communities of color. How can we have new authors and scholars coming in to write different ways of, of being and thinking about populations of color? Who's going to create these theories? Who's going to write these grants to be right out in these populations? So really bringing practitioners in or scholar practitioners in to the field so that we could service right more people of color. Here's what happened, though. And, and I don't know if you experienced this, Anisha, mm -hmm. but this is certainly a part of my experience. You then you get recruited right, with all of the promise of being here to talk about race, to talk about racism, to talk about eth ethnicity, to talk about all these really important cultural factors to people of color. 
and then you start talking about it and the feedback you get in your program is oh you're talking about don't that's making us uncomfortable you uh, don't don't do that right um people of color trainees would get punished as a result of having these conversations in training programs so the issue for me becomes and this really kind of gets at to like how do we address the issue the issue for me becomes how is it that training programs faculty should be asking a whole different set of questions right now about the experiences of people of color, not only that we're trying to treat, but the folks in your programs. How is it that white supremacy culture pushes people out? How is it that white supremacy culture tells somebody like Anisha, your creativity in doing your therapy is wrong because white supremacy culture always looks at people of color and says, and tries to limit us, right? It tries to take away the energy that we bring. It tries to tell us that even our, um, the, the anger that we feel about certain things is wrong. It will always limit us. So, and not only will it limit us, but it also limits white people too. So even as, as Anisha is talking about being perceived, maybe these rules will work for some people, they actually don't. White supremacy culture actually perpetuates a lack of health for white folks, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. To be in grind culture, to be thinking about always coloring within the lines, to be thinking always about productivity, that's not healthy for white people. So we have to be asking the question more broadly, how is white supremacy present? Not, am I being racist? Was I being racist? No, how were you being racist? We have to mm-hmm. ask a how question more than anything else. Mm-hmm. The thing that I think that is really important for people of color who are in training is to also recognize what it is that white supremacy culture does. And what it does is exactly what Anisha is talking about. It makes us feel shame. It makes Mm -hmm. us feel guilt, right? It always limits our capacity to, even though we have questions that we want to ask about people of color communities, right? Whether or not that's in research or even in practice, there is something always about the way that we're trained to to think from Freud's perspective or Kohut's perspective that doesn't necessarily allow us to think about how does this, how is this different for people of color? So we have to actually begin to, and this is something that I have to do for myself all the time, exactly what you were, what you were saying um, earlier, Anisha. I have to say to myself, I'm a good therapist. I know what I'm talking about. I know what I'm doing, right? Yeah. Even when I experience racism in the field, I have to always affirm myself. I know what I'm doing because if I don't affirm myself, I'll go crazy, right? It's really crazy making mm-hmm. for me to try to figure out how do I fit into these rules? Or the supervisor said this, or this other therapist, or this book chapter said this about, no, 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 no. I actually know what I know about, right? So the thing that I think becomes really important is for training programs to be asking a whole different set of questions about the experiences that we're having around race and racism. And not just that we're asking those questions in order to make trainees of color more comfortable. How do we ask these questions in order to make white people uncomfortable and get white people to participate in the pain that racism hands down, because until white people get more uncomfortable, right, and really participate in the pain, we're not going to move forward. Okay, I don't even know where to go. But I was thinking as you were talking, one of the long ongoing conversations that I've been having. So I am, um, I think I only said it on the break that I'm a one trick pony that I'm in modern analysis, or now I did the math the other day, it's almost 30 years that I've been lying on the couch. And so trained, my training is on the couch. And also in the institute, I've been on I go in and out. I haven't, I'm never going to graduate, but I'm also analyzed by the president, the dean of the institution. Mm. So in the conversations that I've been having with her, as she's trying to, she's a white woman, as she's trying to really look at what 
she has been part of creating mm. in and just went with the status quo. Like she never really thought about it until mm-hmm. the past two years. Like mm-hmm. what are, what are we going to do? Like we have to, we have to do it. And I'm like, well, you have to, you have to invite other scholars in mm-hmm. and let them <laughs> let scholars who are not trained by your institution because it's the same conversation. You're just going to keep getting the same conversation. And it was, there was this whole, I, I wasn't involved in it, but there was like, we'll give, we'll give scholarships. I was like, okay, no, no. <laughs> I was like, you have to highlight, you have to highlight the thinkers and highlight the people who have really done the work and really have been thoughtful in the field so that you could, you have to relearn. It's not, you're going to bring people in and train them the same way. I was like, no, 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 no. So I hear what you're saying. And I'm so excited by the idea of the retraining. And I know I said, I definitely said this on the break and I didn't want to say it here is that one of the beauties and the gifts for me to have been supervising Anisha for the past, I don't know now lifetime is that I have learned so much about myself in the room and as a supervisor, there's some of the questions, some of the interventions that I have given her to use make no sense. Sorry. I cursed. Like, and she looks at me and she's like, why would I say that? And even as she was saying, when they ask how I am, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've said, how do I seem? And she's like, I'm going to get, I, I can't say that. I was like, why? And I'm like, why? Just say it. Why? Just try it. She's like, you just, mm-mm. and she's like, right. you don't understand. And I was like, okay. And then I learned and under, and reprogrammed myself when I'm taught, like when I'm listening about who, who she's working with, what she's doing, how it's working. It's it's a conversation that makes me expand. And at times this sure absolutely made me uncomfortable because I'm like, oh, but I'm supposed to teach her. And I'm like, but no, I'm not. She mm-hmm. has to, we have to have both perspectives mm-hmm. and it has, we have to play with it and figure it out. So thank you, Anisha, for everything. Thank you for saying it. I think that um, to know that you learned so much from me, and from supervising me. It's it's amazing for me to hear because for so long, you know, it's just, it's so much questioning of yourself, right? I think as a Black person in general, right? But as a Black therapist, so much questioning of yourself. I will say this and I've never probably said it out loud, but we're just going to go with it today. I have talked to Diana about the uncomfortability of having white clients, Right. And I'm like, Diana, understanding how racism works in our country, why would white people want to see me? I don't get it. And then I said, I understand that for generations, people who look like me have taken care of white people. I don't want to take care of white people. Mm -hmm. So if they're coming to see me for that, that's not who I want to be. That's not what I want to represent. And also, I realized in the beginning, there was an uncomfortability that I had being in the room, Mm -hmm. right? Being the the expert with a white client, right? That I needed so much supervision around talking through all of the feelings that came up for me. And that's not, that's what people don't get as therapists. There's so much that's coming up for us, which is why it's so important for us to be in our own therapy to deal with that. And so I go to therapy every week. (laughs) Right. And I think I would add, Anisha, I think that, you know, therapy is really important, but I think it also speaks to Oftentimes, our supervisors who don't have any training in racial and cultural issues or understanding mm-hmm. racial and cultural dynamics, oftentimes, I mean, I had my own training experiences where a white supervisor will tell me, 
oh, well, the client's racism towards you is not really the focus here um, at all. And then, you know, sending me back into the therapy room to work with somebody who's being overtly racist with me, right? Yes. Whereas, you know, as a, as a trainer myself, as a supervisor myself, that is not something that I do, right? If, if I know that a client is experiencing, if, if I know that a trainee is experiencing racism or sexism or misogyny or you know, heterosexism when they're working with a client, our role as trainers, as supervisors, as gatekeepers then becomes about how do I protect my mm-hmm. trainee? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do I promote actually the future of my trainee's life or my trainee's um, experience in therapy by modeling what needs to happen when somebody is being violent towards them. Um, if in, and, and this, this is this, you know, we come back to the, to the beginning of the conversation. When white supremacy does not allow white people to understand that racism is harmful to the bodies of people of color, if we don't have a fundamental understanding that racism creates emotional, psychological and physical distress for people's bodies, then we will never step in and intervene. And so that becomes a really fundamental piece there. And then I think, again, what, what, what Anisha is giving, giving voice to is also just about recognizing as a person of color that you don't have to stay in that place of shame. Learning how to give voice to that, to that shame and to that yeah. guilt, it mm-hmm. already begins to change your relationship with that, right? So that you can move into a much more powerful place where you can determine like, mm, no, I'm not doing that. That, that, that. That's from a real, that's from a knowing of who you are to be able to push back on the rules of psychotherapy that would tell us to go in and allow ourselves to try to fit or contort ourselves into a box, which is what people of color have been expected to do as a result of the rules of white supremacy culture across time, right? So you're having some knowledge that, mm, yeah, nope, not gonna try to fit myself into that because that would be unhealthy for me that would be unhealthy for the client is actually really, really the, the type of consciousness that we would want um, people from minoritized populations and training to have so they can push back and then change their supervisors, right? Um, but I want to be clear, I'm not saying that it's Anisha's responsibility to change Diana. It's not the trans of color responsibility to change the white supervisees or the, the women's responsibility to change male supervisors, right? There has got to be some responsibility on the part of those from the dominant groups to do some of this work as well. But don't die by trying to contort yourself or, or make yourself small um, if you're a minoritized person in, in, in therapy, um, because that's not going to help anybody. And it's been so helpful for me as I'm a supervisor now and to help the people who I supervise. It's just been a great experience for me to let them know like you don't have to do that. No, like you can do it a different way and still be amazing and still be a great therapist. We can do it a different way and we can talk about it. And I get my supervisees to talk about what they really feel. I'll just bring it up and they're like, oh, oh, we're going to talk. Yeah, we're going to talk about that. What is it like for you in the room? Right. And and I'll be the first. <laughs> this is so deep. I was training um, on postdoc. I was providing supervision to a white male who had come from um, the West Coast. Of, actually, I forget where he came from, actually. But I remember in our first supervision, I was just sort of like saying, like, well, you know, here's my perspective. We're going to talk a little bit about who we are as people. Right. So that we can sharpen our instruments. That's that's the most important part of doing supervision to me. Mm-hmm. You sharpen your instrument so that, you know, when you move into the therapy room, you know, what's yours and you know what the client, you know, what's the clients so that those things don't get commingled or mm-hmm. you don't use your stuff to try to tell 
you know, the client how it is that they should be living their lives. Like, know your stuff. He said to me, um, that's, uh, yeah, I'm not going to do that. That is, uh, <laughs> I mean, I'll do that. In my own, I'll do that in my own therapy. But I'm, yeah, I'm not doing that here with you. <laughs> and I simply said to him, oh, OK, well, we'll do it eventually. Yeah, but yeah. I hear where you are right now. <laughs> right? Yeah. We, we'll, we'll get there. And he was he was a white male therapist. And interestingly, he and I, he, we left, you know, that that place. But we still have a really collegial relationship. I saw him a few years ago. The first, actually, the first time I gave a racial trauma talk, he was in the audience because he had been promoted to an to a training director at a counseling center. Mm -hmm. It was really interesting being able to see him in that space and to hear some of his feedback around how it is that that year of supervision, or maybe that semester of supervision that we did, was really transformative for him because as a white person, he had not been allowed to think that he could bring those parts of himself into the, the therapy space. He had actually been taught, don't bring any of those parts of yourself into the therapy space, right? So not only do we have to do this for trainees of color, we have to do it for white trainees as well. I'm so sad that our talk is over. <laughs> <laughs> There's it's so very many. enlightening. Thank I you. I know, but there is, and I just wanted to, I, I love the language around the instrument because I actually have used that language myself and that you have to fine tune your own feelings and who you are. And that is, you are the vessel that is in the room. And you you are, are the healing vessel. Yeah, exactly. And if you aren't working on understanding who you are and healing yourself, it's just going to get all messy. And you're going to like, I'm sure there's a more articulate way to put that, but you're just going to be at all messy. It's just going to be like, all it's going to be a mess. And everybody's going to like, no one wins because you just get, you end up getting so sick. And so to be able to have that conversation, I mean, I know that my conversation with my analyst and with my supervisor are mostly about my feelings all the time. <laughs> like, I'm like, can I schedule another one? I have more to say. I have more to say. Who wants to listen? No. But thank you so much, Dr. Green. This has been a wonderful, wonderful beginning. Yes, because we're going yes, to have you back. Oh, sure. Yes. Yeah. We're, yes. we're definitely going to have you back. There's so much. And um, I did hear you, you, at the beginning, when I ran downstairs to get a bagel, uh, you have a podcast that we should be listening yes, to? Yes, yes. Well, it, it's just starting. I think we've only, it's a long story. I won't go into the whole story. But um, my podcast partner and I, Sarah, Sarah Lipton, uh, started a podcast called Genuine the Podcast. This oh. most recent episode that we, that I actually was sort of like the solo producer on, I invited actually three psychologists on, three Asian American women psychologists to talk mm -hmm. about their experiences right now, just of living in the world mm -hmm. and having them talk a little bit. And I wasn't anticipating this, but where they went was talking about racial trauma, talking mm -hmm. about being the model minority and talking a little bit about what are some of the strengths that they're drawing on with regards to survival right now. The, the whole podcast is not about so like identity, but there are certain aspects of it that will always be about identity. Because what we're trying to get at is talk, having people talk about their unique experiences in the world. What does it look like to be a genuine human being in the world. So really inviting people to think about our different journeys, our different pathways towards being genuine folks. Oh, that sounds fun. It has been, right? But I was also saying, y'all been doing this for a whole year and y'all have put out 50 something episodes. So that means you have been doing it for a whole year straight. Yeah. Yes. Every week. We Every week. We don't miss. <laughs> a lot of work. <laughs> oh yeah, it's a beast. And I was like, oh, let's just start a little podcast. Yeah, it's a... Mm -mm. No, not little. 
<laughs> yeah, not no. a little amount of work. So hats off to you. <laughs> hats off to you. Thank you. And hats off to you for starting one. And it sounds yeah. amazing. So I can't wait to listen. And hopefully our listeners will listen as well. And we'll make sure to put it in the show notes. Thank yes. you. So everyone knows a little bit about it. And so can you tell everyone where they can find you, Dr. Green? Sure. So um, there I do have a website. Um, it is Carlton E. Green. Um, dot com. And it is still really under development. But if you were looking to get in contact with me, you can go there. I also have a few social media platforms that I use, Twitter and Instagram. Um, and they are both um, Dr. D.R. Um, C.E. Green, my initials, um, my well, my first and middle initial and then green, um, the color. So Dr. C.E. Green, both on Twitter and um, Instagram. And then you can also just find me on Facebook at Carlton E. Green as well. Well, I know when I went to your website, you had a whole list of trainings that you've done. So I can't wait to, hopefully it'll be on Zoom. So I'll be able to see it, right? Because you are in Maryland, I am in New York. But um, that's the great thing about the time that we're living in right it's now. It's one of the benefits, right? It's yeah. one of the benefits, right? Yeah. Everything is not negative, right? I think yeah. a lot of us have grown so much during this time because we've been able to sit with our feelings yeah. in a different way and our thoughts and figure out if the life we were living before is right for us. Yeah. Or should we pivot? Is it time? Yeah. And we'll probably see a lot more of that after the pandemic, right? People will be yes. pivoting. <laughs> yes. Again. I'm going to use that word pivot again and again and again. <laughs> <laughs> Lord have mercy. Um, okay. Well, we have uh, now it's time for our last hurrah, Anisha. Oh, yeah. So I ask you questions that have nothing to do with what we talked about today. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes. So my first question to you is what's your favorite 90s jam? Ooh, child. Oh, child. Um, <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <laughs> you know what? The reaction to this question is always the best. It was right, perfect. Um, I would probably say, ooh, the the thing that comes to mind is "Weak" by SWV. Okay, okay. You know they're gonna have a versus soon. Are they really? Mm-hmm. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah they're gonna they they're gonna uh, be against Escape, so they're gonna uh, okay. yeah them in Escape. Yeah. yeah, I don't even know if they. That's a real versus, but yes. They're not they're, com- There's I, no competition, think, but okay, we'll go for it. Comparable. Did you think that the last one between Earth, Wind, and Fire and the Isley Brothers, I think those are both really historic acts. Yeah. I didn't think that they should have been put they, together. Yeah. No, but you know how it goes. It was a good night right. for the culture. For the culture. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and my next question is, what is what was your favorite quarantine purchase? Because you know a lot of us was purchasing a lot of things during this last year. What was the your favorite purchase that you made? I bought a Peloton. Oh, you're a Peloton <laughs> person. Diana has hers right behind. <laughs> What's your? Uh, what? Like, how do I find she's you? I'm so Peloton. excited now. Uh, oh I think God. it's just C Green Y. So like C Greeny. I think that's okay. that's what I ended up calling myself. But there's also a picture of me there that you might be able to make out. So it would be oh, me. Yeah. I'm gonna find yeah. you. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I have you know what I haven't written it this week, but um, I was I was trying to exercise in a different way this week. So we'll see what happens. And next week I'll be on vacation, but I'll be back after that. Do you use the? I mean, I use the app for everything. Oh, see, I'm I'm learning to use the app more. I use mostly use it just for the rides. Oh no, I use it for everything. Like you put your headphones on, go for a walk, use the app. Even a couple med- couple gratitude medication yes. and meditations, medications, <laughs> meditations. Okay. Yeah. You know. Twenty minute hit. <laughs> you can do those twenty minute hit classes. Woof. Yes. I love it. Yes. I, love, uh, I love the Peloton people. I can't <laughs> get enough. Who's your favorite instructor? That is a good question. I'm a sampler. 
I'm, I don't, I haven't really like. You don't have just one. Yeah. I'm a sampler. Okay. How about you? Well, I'm, I, I love Cody. Cody Rigsby is right up there for me. And um, I also like Tunde. She mm-hmm. kicked my ass the other day. Mm-hmm. But uh, my boyfriend just started riding and he is totally loyal to Jess King. Oh, okay. Interesting. He's not, ta- he's like, now it's a joke. We have this okay. very, we have this, like, what are you and Jess doing today? <laughs> <laughs> or like that. Oh, I'm like, what, what's happening up there with that's Jess? That's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I will say that one of the things that I was loving, and then it it went away, loving, right, was Allie Loves Sundays with Love. Um, But then she stopped doing that. She stopped doing that. But those Um, are good. Those are good. They are very, very good. If you're a meditative person or somebody who's looking like for some of those, um, somebody who's trying to give you a theme to live with for the week, those are great. Those are great. She did a, I'm pretty sure it was her, she did a whole ride to Lauren Hill recently that i think i that's when i call i I think i texted you anish and i was like you don't have to give up the 90s you don't don't have to look for any other music just like we can all stop there now that now that is one of the things with me i actually try to find people who are doing so like 70s 80s 90s music or i find Mm -hmm. the playlist around that if it's like from the 2000s or i don't actually have never heard it so i'm like okay Yeah. That's all I listen to. It's yeah. like the '90s. My husband's like, "You have nothing up to date on your iPod." No, I don't. Okay. I, do, I really have, don't. And you have an iPod, so <laughs> so, so we'll that says call, it all. We'll just call it what it is. That says it all. <laughs> nothing else needs to be said now. Exactly. Oh. All right. Well, we really, we really just stop here. Okay. Thank you again so much, Dr. Green, and we're looking forward to having you back. And Anisha, you know what? We are still in a pandemic. That's right. So we stay are safe. Still- Stay safe, wash your, damn wash your hands, hands please. and wear your damn mask, people, please. Thank you. Even if you're just doing it to be polite, just put it on. Thank you. We want right. to go back outside and live our lives. I know. <laughs> okay, we're going to stop here and we'll see you next week. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Be Real podcast. Stay connected to us and subscribe to Be Real wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you are feeling it, how about a five-star review? If our conversation sparked a question, join us in the Be Real podcast Facebook group. We hope that you have walked away with some new insights, curiosities, and ideas to better help you on your journey to mental wellness and overall well-being. I encourage you to go to bewellpsychotherapy.com and check out our services and programs. Again, that's bewellpsychotherapy.com. Okay, we have to stop here, but I'll see you next week.